Hello, and welcome to Talking Opinions. I am your host, Anthony Livingston Hall. The initial stampede to leave Afghanistan have played out last week like scenes from a Hollywood disaster movie. Ironically, the purportedly competent US military appeared to be executing a mass evacuation no more effectively than the allegedly feckless Afghan army fought the Taliban. People of conscience everywhere watched in shock and dismay. The Chinese and Russians were notable exceptions as they led a chorus of anti-Western zealots in rejoicing. For them, this categorical humiliation of the mighty United States was a consummation devoutly to be wished. The collateral suffering of fleeing Afghans be damned. But to leave or not to leave, that was never the question. Whether it was smarter to secure the airport and then stand by as teeming Afghans rushing Taliban checkpoints prevented even Americans from getting to it, or to take flight above that desperate scrum and, by avoiding it, extract Americans and Afghan allies from all over Afghanistan to flee, to live. That was the question. I have written many blog commentaries addressing the many reasons why leaving should never have been a question. In fact, I need only refer you to my recent commentary. Afghanistan. U.S. officials have always known this war is unwinnable. From August 17, for a 15-year retrospective, on my abiding lament in this respect. Or, perhaps more suitable given this forum, I can refer you to an equally comprehensive podcast episode titled Pentagon Papers at 50 regarding Afghanistan from June 19. But a passage from one of those commentaries crystallizes not just my take on this unfolding retreat, but my prefiguration of it. The title itself speaks volumes, namely, Without or even with more forces, failure in Afghanistan is likely. More to the point, though, here is what I wrote in that commentary way back on September 23, 2009. And I quote, 
America's legacy in Afghanistan will be distinguished either by a terminally wounded pride as American forces beat a hasty retreat in defeat following the Russian precedent or by tens of thousands of American soldiers dying in Afghanistan's graveyard of empires as they continue fighting this unwinnable war following America's own precedent in Vietnam. And more troops only mean more sitting ducks for Taliban fighters. Therefore, Obama would be well advised to cut America's losses and run ASAP. Let the Afghans govern themselves however they like and rely on special forces and aerial drones to disrupt and dismantle Taliban and Al-Qaeda operations there. End quote. In other words, even I could foresee the problem inherent in U.S. soldiers doing too much fighting and U.S. politicians doing too little questioning during the first decade of this war. Because this was breeding a dependency that clearly made too many Afghan soldiers feel they would never have to fight to defend their own country. And it was giving license to Afghan politicians to treat the billions the US was sending to fund this war as little more than their personal slush fund. Endemic corruption and general administrative incompetence prevailed, which led inexorably to this classic Vietnam paradox. U.S. soldiers and their Afghan trainees winning the battles, only for U.S. politicians and their Afghan mentees to lose the war. You've probably heard that the 300,000-strong Afghan army lost this war because the Americans suddenly withdrew air support a few months ago. But after 20 friggin' years of getting the best training, equipment, and air support any army could ever hope for, any self-respecting member of that Afghan army would dismiss this claim as condescending bullshit. I mean, all any sensible person has to do is ask, what air support did the 75,000 ragtag band of Taliban have? <laughs> Crickets. Of course, you'd be forgiven for thinking that I'm just tooting my own horn again. <laughs> Except that, many years later, when former Obama administration officials began publishing their customary tell-alls, I found out that then-Vice President Joe Biden not only shared my take, but advocated for it uh, to no avail. Uh, but I hope that little background will help you understand, or at least put into perspective, 
the unbridled indignation and unusual defiance Biden showed when the sudden collapse of the Afghan government forced this evacuation. After all, he lobbied for over a decade for America to leave Afghanistan with honor and from a position of strength. Yet, here he is, presiding over this hasty retreat in defeat that is not only opening but deepening the terminal wounds leaving Vietnam inflicted on America's national pride. No doubt Biden blames former President George W. Bush and his cabal of neocon crusaders for leading America down the primrose path to the Kabul airport, where its longest war is coming to such a humiliating and tragic end. But I suspect he blames two other presidents for thwarting his efforts to spare America this humiliating retreat and these wounds of war. And, as fate would have it, these same two men are still thwarting his efforts to do what he thinks is best for America with respect to COVID and Kabul, respectively. The first man, of course, is his former boss, Barack Obama. Recall that, instead of heeding Biden's advice to end this war over 10 years ago, Obama surged tens of thousands of troops to escalate it. Fast forward, and here we have Biden, all over TV pleading with Americans to get vaccinated and practice social distancing in light of the Delta variant of COVID-19. And along comes Obama, making a mockery of his pleadings by inviting over 600 people to attend his birthday party. Visceral backlash forced Obama to scale back to an infectiously spurious 200. But his dogged determination to still party like it's 1999 forced his die-hard defenders to rationalize his Trumpian tone deafness. Sure enough, no less a trendsetter than the New York Times did just that, with a headline reporter declaring that Obama's party was okay, because his guests were all sophisticated people. <laughs> like Biden, there was no containing my unbridled indignation. I commented at the New York Times on August 9, as follows. Sophisticated? <laughs> More imperious, I'd say. Meanwhile, images of Obama blithely dancing his reputation away are now more viral than the Delta variant. He had to know they would convey heartlessness that would make Marie Antoinette blush. <laughs> Frankly, they suggest he does not give a damn about pissing all over his presidential brother Joe Biden's plaintive message to save 
people's lives. But someone should ask, Mr. Obama, what will it profit you to have a birthday party but lose your reputation? End quote. Still incredulous, I vented more fully in a blog commentary the next day titled What Price Party? Obama's Let Them Eat Cake Birthday Bash on August 10. The second man happens to be the first man America installed as president of Afghanistan, namely Hamid Karzai. Even I had read enough to see him as little more than a self-righteous and self-entitled conman, whose loyalties were as firm as a perfectly lubricated weather vane. So if I held Karzai in such utter contempt, Biden must have felt the need to decontaminate his whole body every time he had to shake the sleazy Afghan's hand and return his crooked smile. This is not the forum to delve too much into the well-documented corruption that informed my opinion of Karzai, that is duly reflected in my commentaries and the podcast episode I mentioned earlier. And I gather it is foolhardy to give a captive audience any reason to go elsewhere. But nobody has written more convincingly and comprehensively on the dynamics that led to the collapse of the Afghan government than former NPR reporter and author Sarah Chase. Her opus, Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security, attests to this. But fear not. She published a far more digestible essay with respect to Afghanistan, titled The Ides of August, on August 15. I highly recommend it. Still, it is worth noting that, whether as America's Iago or the Taliban's, Hamid Karzai has always found a way to thrive. Apropos of which, you have probably seen the pictures he released, showing him looking very presidential in meetings with Taliban leaders. His clear intent was to juxtapose those commanding pictures with pictures of deposed Afghan President Ashraf Ghani pleading for sympathy after fleeing into comfortable exile in Dubai. Ghani claims he fled with just the clothes on his back to spare the country any further bloodshed, but who's never going to live down reports that he had over $150 million in cash stashed in his getaway convoy. Even so, Karzai's scheming is such that I commented on an August 18 report in the New York Times on his meeting with the Taliban as follows. 
I suspect Karzai is advising Taliban leaders against letting any Afghan flee. He is probably assuring them that their blanket amnesty should mollify international concerns and warning them of a brain drain that would make governing impossible. This is why the US military will be lucky to evacuate half of the hundreds of thousands of Afghans it promised it would never leave behind to a Taliban fate. In other words, Biden's endgame is doomed and with it America's much vaunted reputation. End quote. Sure enough, my contention was affirmed in both respects on August 24, when Biden doubled down on August 31 as his drop-dead date to complete this evacuation. And more to the point, he did so under duress, because one day earlier, on August 23, the Taliban issued a red-letter ultimatum that it would not allow any more Afghans to leave and that US troops would suffer dire consequences if they are still on Afghan soil after August 31. Given the past 20 years and all America and the Taliban purportedly represent, respectively, even that tail wagging the dog idiom cannot fully explain this humiliation. But that idiom does explain why anti-Western zealots like China, Russia, and their terrorist bedfellows everywhere cannot contain their schadenfreude. In fact, Given their gloating, you'd never know that, with the US leading the charge at the UN, China is facing credible charges of genocide against the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities that, still wary of its own Chechen Muslims, Russia is closing its borders to fleeing Afghan Muslims, and that, after cultivating Taliban fighters within its own borders to bedevil U.S. efforts in Afghanistan, Pakistan is expressing concerns that the Taliban might have left too much of their Islamic radicalism planted on Pakistani soil. This brings to mind the parable about the frog offering the scorpion a piggyback ride across the river, only for the scorpion to sting the frog midway across, drowning them both. Each of these countries will rue the day they got into bed with the Taliban, because these self-righteous jihadis will not be content to stand by, as China and Russia continue persecuting innocent Muslims. For now, though, China and Russia are all too happy to offer all the international recognition and financial aid the Taliban needs 
to weather increasingly hollow U.S. threats of diplomatic and economic sanctions to keep them in line. And not to mention that there are many reasons why you don't read reports about people choosing any of those countries for a better life the way people choose America. Put another way, you won't find rich Americans living in China or Russia the way rich Chinese and Russians live in America. So trust me, folks. All of that gloating in China and Russia is suffused with envy. But I need to go back in time for a second. When this evacuation began on August 14, the Dunkirk evacuation of 1940 began trending on all media. But I jumped into the fray to suggest that the Berlin airlift of 1948 might be a better analogy. For starters, Dunkirk was mostly by sea, whereas Berlin, like Kabul, was mostly by air. Moreover, Dunkirk evacuated military personnel, whereas Berlin, like Kabul, evacuated mostly civilians. Sure enough, during a White House briefing on Monday, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan affirmed my suggestion when he said that this could be the largest airlift in history. Airlift being the operative word. That said, the chaos at Kabul airport has provided heart-wrenching images of this evacuation. But I am all too mindful that, in this age of viral images, even they will be fleeting and their impact only superficial. Remember all of those heart-wrenching images of Syrian refugees? complete with those of drowned children washing up on European shores? <laughs> well, other viral images soon replace them in public consciousness and, in out-of-sight, out-of-mind fashion, the plight of those refugees no longer mattered. In any event... I have found the despairing cries of allied Afghan interpreters even more heart-wrenching. Perhaps you've heard some of their voicemails, which they've been leaving for any and every American they know. In many cases, their despair is compounded by consternation, over State Department bureaucrats declaring their papers not in order. In one notorious case, even the intervention of a U.S. senator was not enough to overcome six years of bureaucratic BS to get one bona fide Afghan interpreter his visa. Which raises the question, why wasn't the word of the U.S. soldier who relied on that Afghan interpreter to save his life, good enough 
America entrusts soldiers with so much. Why not trust them to vouch for Afghans worthy of being granted special immigrant visas? This, especially when you consider the thousands of migrants who cross the southern border into the United States every friggin' week. Meanwhile, the media are replete with armchair and keyboard generals venting their spleens about the shameful way Biden is ending this war. Of course, I've already shown, with the passage I quoted earlier, that you'd be hard to press to find anyone who understands better than I do why Biden is ending it. But this understanding is precisely why I am stupefied by his claim that the crocodile pleadings of deposed President Ghani persuaded him to ignore the earnest pleadings of U.S. veterans. You've probably seen them all over TV bemoaning how they tried to get Biden to begin this evacuation months ago. Because back then, Ghani's government was still in control of Kabul, and U.S. troops were still stationed at the mammoth Bagram Air Base, and had prevailing access to every nook and cranny of the country. So, no matter what he says, I suspect Biden is kicking himself for putting the proverbial cart before the horse. This by ordering the closure of Bagram before using that base and the troops stationed there to execute the evacuation he's having to manage now from the Kabul airport, at the mercy not just of the Taliban, but of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and every other crackpot terrorist group now rushing in to claim a piece of this new jihadi caliphate. Case in point, ISIS registered its claim in typical fashion, with a suicide bombing on Thursday. Thirteen U.S. soldiers and over 90 Afghan civilians were killed and 18 U.S. soldiers were among the more than 140 wounded. But, as tragic as that was, it merely reflected what daily life has been for Afghans for years, and presaged how similar bombings will now menace their daily lives more than ever. Uh, by the way, those casualty figures are of this recording, early on Friday, August 27, but everyone expects them to increase. On the other hand, even before this bombing, Pentagon officials were telegraphing why Biden's Kabul evacuation might doom his presidency even more than Carter's Tehran rescue doomed his.
This, as reporters repeatedly questioned them about the folly of limiting their mission to securing the airport, while just 100 yards away, Taliban thugs are preventing Afghans who fought and worked alongside Americans from gaining access to the airport. Uh, clearly, it would have been smarter for Biden to deploy as many troops as necessary to clear a path for Americans and Afghan allies to get into the airport without having to brave a death-defying gauntlet of Taliban checkpoints. Uh, but I distinguish that patent absurdity from what I suspect are the secret missions U.S. troops have been executing from day one to extract other Americans and Afghan allies from all over Afghanistan. But common sense dictates not talking about them, which is why it is so irresponsible for reporters to continually pester Pentagon officials for operational details about them. Apropos of which, pundits and politicians across the political spectrum have been demanding an extension of Tuesday's evacuation deadline. But it's easy for them to do so, because they have no responsibility for the troops who would have to risk their lives to enforce it. Thursday's bombing threw into tragic relief how heavily that weighs on Biden's shoulders, and rightly so. Incidentally, from the outset, the White House asked veterans, journalists, and other interested persons to provide contact information for any American or Afghan ally they are concerned about. So instead of allowing anyone to grandstand on TV about people being left behind, news anchors should press them to disclose if they have provided that information. After all, the Pentagon has indicated that, despite public Taliban rhetoric and checkpoints, U.S. troops are extracting Americans and Afghan allies who contact them or who they contact proactively. And the State Department has insinuated that many of the Americans and Afghans people are so concerned about do not want to leave or do not exist. Moreover, it might help to bear in mind that the tragic chaos that has marred this evacuation stems from the fact that the vast majority of Afghanistan's 38 million people would rather leave than live under Taliban rule. This is why only a tiny fraction of the people crowding Kabul airport every day can claim to have fought or worked alongside Americans or other NATO forces over the past 20 years. And... No matter how heart-wrenching the images, there is only so much America can do.
Yet, even in the midst of this crisis, the political tribalism I decried in the episode, online comments, and the fate of democracy on June 12, 2021, is rearing its ugly head. Specifically, you have Republicans, on the one hand, criticizing Biden for not doing enough to rescue Afghans, and on the other hand, criticizing him for flooding America with huddled masses of Afghans who will change the complexion of the country. Hell, reports are that some Republicans were goading Biden to extend his August 31 deadline just to give ISIS more time to kill U.S. troops. This, just so they can run political ads blaming him. They dare not say, but Republicans probably see Thursday's bombing as every bit the strategic godsend for them as it clearly is for ISIS, salivating as I'm sure they are at the prospect of Benghazi-style hearings on this costly and deadly evacuation. Even so, Senator Lindsey Graham takes the cake. After all, just a few years ago, he had tears of affection welling up in his eyes as he hailed Biden as, and I quote, as good a man as God ever created, end quote. Yet today, in order to seal his pledge of loyalty to Trump, he's assailing Biden as a heartless man who should be impeached. <laughs> this because Graham claims Biden's order to withdraw from Afghanistan has left the United States, and again I quote, naked and blind, end quote. Of course, all of Washington recognized his Freudian slip immediately, because Lady G, as we affectionately refer to him, <laughs> was uh, clearly confusing the historic evacuation underway in Afghanistan with the trauma he is apparently suffering from one of those BDSM sessions Washington whispers about. But loyalty to Trump has demanded public displays of hypocrisy, cuckoldry, and pusillanimity so perverse that no perversion any Republican gets off on in his private life surprises any more. Still, politically motivated criticisms aside, I fear what is arguably the greatest airlift in history will be terminally undermined by the cries of some Americans and many Afghans, most notably those of women and girls, who were left behind. Biden ran for president on a promise to restore confidence in America's leadership on the world stage. 
In doing so, he continually cited the crisis of confidence Trump's disruptive, incompetent, and unreliable presidency caused, as reason enough to elect him to bring America back. This is why it must strike even him as painfully ironic that America's NATO allies are expressing grave concerns that the cowardly way American troops left Bagram Air Base, i.e. by cutting the electricity so they could sneak off in the middle of the night without informing their NATO allies, let alone their Afghan allies, and the chaotic and deadly way this evacuation is playing out, are causing a crisis of confidence so severe that even the British are publicly questioning US leadership and wondering aloud about the need to form a Western alliance that no longer depends on it. And so, if America was back, it did not stay long. Uh, mind you, it can't help that former British Prime Minister Tony Blair is the leading voice among Biden's critics. He went viral this week for saying that Biden was being driven by an imbecilic slogan about ending forever wars. The problem is that Blair is the imbecile who commissioned the sexed-up dossier, which served as the pretext for the United States launching that equally shambolic war in Iraq. But all Putin needs now to make his gloating complete is for this poodle's big dog, George W. Bush, to jump in the midst of this NATO circular firing squad in a vain attempt to cover his arse too. In fairness to Biden, I'd be remiss to end this episode without noting the blame he rightly lays at Trump's feet for this humiliating retreat. After all, no less a person than H.R. McMaster, Trump's own national security advisor, is also all over TV denouncing the surrender agreement which he claims sealed America's defeat and made this retreat inevitable. That agreement, of course, is the one Trump famously dispatched Mike Pompous Pompeo, his Secretary of State, to Doha to sign for the Taliban. What's more, just months ago, Trump was leading the chorus of Republican surrender monkeys in bragging about that agreement being so airtight it would force Biden to withdraw, exactly as Trump foolishly intended. And, given the chaos and tragedy we have seen unfold, that's all too easy to believe. But it should surprise nobody 
that Trump is not only a cowardly fool, who can't even own up to his own mess, but a genocidal maniac, who has already shown he has no qualms about seeing hundreds of thousands of Americans die, just to score cheap political points. In any event, Biden is consoling himself by saying history will judge him favorably, shambles and all. To be sure, history is judging Jimmy Carter far more favorably today than critics did during his presidency. But this is so because historians have deemed the charitable works he has done throughout his 40-year post-presidency more than sufficient to atone for the blunders he committed during his four-year presidency. Except that Biden is already at the twilight age of 78, so he'll be lucky if he has four years, let alone 40, to do enough charitable works throughout his post-presidency to atone in similar fashion for the blunders he committed during his presidency. That's it. Thank you for listening, and until the next Talking Opinions, goodbye.